This is Mindframe, a podcast of mind-bending science fiction. I'm Dave Moten. I'm both the author of Mindframe and I am the narrator of all the chapters. And I'm recording here in the Sofa King podcast studio along with Brent Van Tassel, my producer and partner in crime on all things Mindframe. On this episode, you'll be listening to chapter two, which is the story of Teddy. Teddy is a the owner of a construction company, a large construction company, and he's had a turbulent past because he spent some years uh, behind enemy lines in the war, and now that he's home and rebuilding his life, he is also the one who has been recruited by Josephine from Chapter 1 to help rebuild the Old Dame Hotel. So we get to see some insights on the, the life of Teddy with a couple of interesting facts that you might not have been expecting. So make sure that you uh, give it a, a close listen. If you like what you're hearing, you can always find us on patreon.com uh, backslash mindframe podcast, and you can uh, support us that way, getting things like the sit down um, and some exclusive t-shirts and other uh, items based on the tier that you select. And as always, we are a Podbelly original, and you can go to podbelly.com to find educational content and a great directory of different podcasts um, from all sorts of different uh, topics that you might want to um, get into. So without further ado, let's get into it and listen to the story of Teddy. Chapter 2, Teddy, circa 1959. Teddy parked his truck in front of his house. He guesstimated what 18 inches was, trying to lay his tire down next to the curb, right where it should be. One reversal, one creep forward, and he shut the thrumming drum of his Ford's engine down. Junior got out of the truck, pulled a metal tape measure out of the tool belt he had slung over his shoulder, and measured the tire to the curb. 18 exactly. Pay me. Let me see that, Manny said, pulling out his own tape, shaking his head as he lost a dollar and what had to have been a fool's bet. Teddy's measurements were always perfect, even if parking a truck next to the gutter. Manny swore in his native tongue, peeling a dollar out of his overall's breast pocket and tossing it on the ground in front of Junior. Junior laughed, picked it up, and kissed the bill. Teddy was curious himself and stood next to the driveway to see how close to the curb he'd gotten. Looked 18 inches to him. Teddy always had to park on the street in front of his house since the driveway was overrun by a duo of weak-old 1960 Ford Country Squires he bought for two wives, an old Buick Super now driven by Junior Jr. and Manny's 54 Thunderbird. Baby Lynn was washing the windows in the scant orange light of the sun, just a blurred autumn flashback deep on the western edge of the sky. Manny ran over to her swept her up, suds, sponge and all, and kissed her on the mouth and neck. Then he stopped and kissed her belly, pulling her shirt up for all to see. No bump there yet, the fetus too small. Baby Lynn acted offended, pulled her shirt down. All can see, she said in Tagalog. That's the point, Manny stood and rubbed her tummy one last time. Take those dirty shoes off before you go into the house. I spent all day cleaning in there and I don't aim to do it again. And if you're trying to save money for your new baby, quit taking foolish bets with Junior. She swatted Manny on the rump where his wallet was. He swatted her rump in return. A typical greeting between Manny and baby Lynn. They were in a stage of love that flourished and renewed itself with every passing moment. Be they together or separated, the effect was the same. Their passion grew steeply at some deep-cutting angle that Teddy could never quite calculate. Their swatting turned into an embraced paired with a very passionate kiss. 
too passionate for proper public display. Teddy laughed, knowing you'd hear about such wild indecency from Miss Maybach across the street. They are still young, Junior said to Teddy as he took his empty lunch pail from the bed of the truck. Junior was Manny's cousin, old enough to be his uncle, and he and his wife, Raina, were more realistic in their marriage. They'd been married for 18 years, before America entered World War II, and long before they moved here to the States when Teddy came home. Raina and Junior's son, who they called Junior Junior, was 16 now, old enough to stop attending high school and start doing roofs on one of Teddy's crews. He too lived in Teddy's house as he tried to save up enough money to buy his own place, one of the smaller homes Teddy was building on a tract on the edge of town. It was a neighborhood for Negroes to live in, mostly, so they wouldn't mind if a Filipino moved in there. Teddy's house was in a white neighborhood, and his odd menagerie of Filipino housemates confused the neighbors, but they got a pass through Teddy. It was an old community, and everyone knew Teddy and Teddy's father before him. Plus, Manny and Junior were quick to help mend a roof, install a fence, and snake a drain whenever a white neighbor was ailing, proving that they were the good kind of Filipino, as Teddy was told on several occasions by people who had never otherwise met a Filipino in their lives. Teddy's home was a spacious four-bedroom with a basement and a mother-in-law unit in the back, which is where he slept. It was the house Teddy grew up in. He'd moved there when he was only nine and his parents were still alive. He left it seven years later to go off and see the Orient, but he got caught up during the war as the Nipponese closed in on everything like an ever-expanding fist wrapping around a world whose size was diminished by technology. The Nipponese quickly broke the notion of the war to end all wars as Hirohito set upon the east like their hostile ancestors did centuries before under the hand of the Khans. But the war seemed a different life ago. The tears and hunger of those years were replaced by laughter and the scream of an electric broom. Teddy liked hearing the chatter, feeling the presence of a family in his home. He liked hearing jokes and arguments, kids giggling, babies crying. He especially liked the food, always expertly prepared and plied his way. Plus, Teddy was always able to escape to his own living room out back in the mother-in-law when he no longer felt social. He had his own bachelor pad and still got to experience a family in his proper home whenever he needed to feel part of a larger social grouping. Teddy knew he was an observer to a reality that wasn't his, just drawing on the illusion of family to satisfy the lack of his own, but he liked it just fine. That's what he chose in his life, far wanderings, strange ports, and helping others build things up they couldn't build themselves. His decision left him no time for family, but that wasn't true. Manny and Junior, Raina and Baby Lynn and their children, that was his family. Out back, he saw Raina whacking a broom handle into a rug like a mad woman dust blowing off in forceful gusts. The Titian sky grew darker and the chill of deep December started to creep in from the east. It had been warm today, but that heat was being wicked into outer space as night fell. All the house rugs were hanging on their clotheslines, waiting to be beaten. Raina and Baby Lynn really had been cleaning all day if the rugs were out. That meant a mopped floor. Raina smiled and waved at Teddy. Dinner in about an hour, she said. This was far more than she managed for her husband, Junior, who she was still pissed at about something that happened this morning. Teddy waved back, took Baby Lynn's advice about dirty work boots, and left them on the small concrete stoop in front of his own door. He spent the day laying pipe for the housing tract, and that was muddy work in this season's endless, wild, unusual rain. 
He'd rather be working up the mountain on the old dame, but the snow had kept him from going up the hill for the past two weeks. He had plans now to restore all four wings, had forced truck after truck, at great expense, up the mountain to unload what seemed like enough construction material to build a second hotel. The plan was to use the new drywall technique Teddy was installing on all of his housing down in the valley. It was a new way to wall a house, quick, cheap, and effective, using the best advances in home-building technology. Nobody else in town had started using it yet, so it gave Teddy an amazing advantage. He built houses in half the time as his competition scratched their head in wonder. Josephine didn't want drywall, however. She wanted the classic lath and plaster, so the entire dame was built using the old construction technique that Teddy had outgrown. More time, but he agreed it would be better. Everything was in place for their winter construction. Now they were waiting for the plows to clear off the mountain roads. He hadn't spoken to Josephine in a while, but he was sure she was fine. She was too stubborn to die in a raging fire, lived on cans of beans at room temperature for six months, and peed in a bucket all summer before the plumbing was fixed. She'd be fine through a single snowstorm. He admired her pluck, and he loved that old place. He'd always wanted to visit as a kid, heard stories about it, the glory days of that hotel. It was a legendary place, a vital piece of architectural history. It was scarred now and battered, but eager to continue in its legacy. The thing could be restored. That was one thing Teddy knew to be true. A grizzled wrench jockey named Mac, Teddy and Junior's friend and mentor, taught him that. Everything could be fixed. Every boat could be made to float again. Old Mac still sent a wire to Teddy from time to time. It would get delivered to Teddy's house or down at the office where Kathy would relay it to him with her usual contempt for the world. Mac would also call whenever he was someplace with a working phone, and he'd always charge it to Teddy, exorbitant fees for breaching this ocean or that with underwater cables. But now, Mac was on his way to St. Louis to start working on something called the Jefferson National Expansion Memorial instead of rusty ships full of bullet holes. Mac was going to start excavating in a few months up there using his shipbuilding knowledge to help weld and construct a giant arch that was to be a gateway to the west. Mac's last telegram told Teddy that he'd be excavating for a few years and then the construction would begin in earnest for many years after that. At least the long-distance charges would come from Missouri instead of Manila. Teddy missed Mac more than he missed his own heavy-handed father or drunken mother. Then again, Mac was more a parent, more a teacher, and more a mentor than Teddy's blood parents ever were. Mac took in Teddy, back in Manila, shielded him from the worst parts of the war, taught him construction, gave him work. Teddy was eager to see the old man, and soon. He took a quick shower with the television on. It was one of his favorite moments of the day, the post-work shower. His muscles were always yawning with a day's hard work, and the heat and steam melted the banged thumbs and bruised shoulder from hauling pipes right down the drain. He rolled his right shoulder in a circle several times under the hot water to work out whatever was wrong in there. Teddy pressed and pulled at his shoulder, trying to iron out kinks. His hand fell on one of his tattoos, the one that was from the quay. The quay was a short stretch of oceanfront that he and Mac took over and ran ship repair from after the war. The quay, now, Quay Shipyards, LLC, had become a commercial success in the past decade, setting Mac up nicely and giving a healthy monthly paycheck to Teddy as co-founder. Now it repaired and built major cargo haulers, 
shipping goods from Japan to America as part of various trade agreements designed to rebuild the island nation. The logo Mac drew for the quay was a pyramid with a giant Q at the top of it, cutting the pyramid in half. Mac, Teddy, and Manny all got drunk on Tandway rum and had the symbol tattooed on their right biceps back in Manila. Teddy stepped out of the shower feeling refreshed, shoulder loosened up, ready to work a second shift if he had to. But he didn't have to. Not anymore. That was how he got by in Manila, a shower and a quick bite before the night shift. But now, he was the boss. He toweled dry and went to the small living room of the mother-in-law. The television had lost its signal. He fidgeted with the rabbit ears until the image came back in. The set was a Sylvania Templeton with dual speakers, a halo light, the works. It could carry a good picture when the antennas were right. He saw a color television set down at Haskell's and he had his eyes on it, but it was too big to fit in his small living space since it had a record player and a wet bar all installed. It was a major set piece for a room. He thought about buying one for the main house as a Christmas present for the wives a few weeks back, but he bought them new cars instead. They were certainly happy about the decision, and Teddy could certainly afford it with all the work that had been thrown his way lately. There was a boom of XGIs now back in the workforce, a boom of automobiles churning from factories in Detroit that were just a few years ago making bombs and tanks. And that meant there was a boom in his house, and a boom in suburban mini-cities sprawling on the outskirts of town, and a boom in his rapid drywall technique. When Teddy bought the wives the cars with his boom money, he even gave a car to Kathy, his office manager. She refused to be called a secretary for a Christmas present. She saw to all the small things needed to run Teddy's burgeoning construction empire. She made sure the timber came in, the cement was on time, the shingles got delivered. She hired the crews, maintained payroll, did everything that wasn't swinging a hammer. The businesses would fail without Kathy, just as surely it would without Teddy. Many people didn't get her sense of humor, but Kathy was a loving woman and wanted to see every project be completed as perfectly as Teddy himself did. She was also all sass, Kathy was, and when he brought her out of the work trailer to see her new country squire with a gigantic red bow on top, she walked around the car, kicked the tires once, and said simply, I asked for a color TV. He'd buy her one soon, even though she was paid very well. Better than most women in most professions, that was certain. The gifts, the amount of money he paid his secretary, Teddy realized that he was in the first stage of becoming, perhaps, wealthy. Walter Cronkite was on the tube. NBC was airing a special New Year's Eve showing of You Are There. Teddy thought the show was odd, a fictional retelling of historical events through the lens of modern-day news broadcasts but it was always entertaining. He remembered one where Cronkite went way back in time and interviewed a key witness to the Salem witch trials, and Teddy thought it was a hoot. The show wrapped up like it always did, with Cronkite sincerely looking into the camera and saying, what sort of day was it? A day like all days, filled with those events that alter and illuminate our times, and you were there. Teddy thought it sounded foolish on most days, too lofty, but tonight, on New Year's Eve, it seemed to have some sheen to it. It was a Thursday night, and tomorrow he should be working as he did on all Fridays, but most of his men, and certainly Kathy, expected New Year's Day off. Everyone was making an even bigger deal out of New Year's this time around because tomorrow was officially 1960, 
a date most people couldn't even conceive of back during the war. It felt like the future was starting tomorrow. But Teddy did not like to sit idle, and he figured he'd be working on a job somewhere tomorrow, holiday or not. Manny and Junior would probably join him. It seemed they never left his side. Dinner! Raina called from the back window of the main house for Teddy and let the call suffice for her husband and kids as well. Teddy knew Raina before he even knew Junior, back in Manila, before the war started. She had once lived across the hall from him in an apartment that smelled like sulfur and wet carpets, and she taught him to speak Tagalog as they smoked cigarettes and drank coconut wine into the evening. Teddy set her up on a blind date with Junior on a New Year's Eve many years lost. New Year's Eve... That was probably what her fight with Junior started over early this morning, an unofficial anniversary that Junior forgot. Teddy went into the main house. One by one, everyone gathered at the table, 11 in total with all the kids, Junior's girlfriend and Kathy, who showed up mid-meal hungry and cranky. Baby Lynn said grace and meant it, and they ate a feast of goat stew, fried pork rolls, dried sausages sautéed in oil, rice, some flat bread, and rice noodles. A sponge cake was served as dessert, stuffed with a thick cream. Teddy knew Baby Lynn made it because he loved Twinkies, and this was a much better version. After dinner, they played cards and listened to the radio, and then Manny plucked a guitar and sang for a bit. He was good enough that he could have played music for a living instead of construction. The kids fell asleep at different points in the night, but hung to consciousness with a tenacity to see midnight that almost rivaled their plans to stay up and see Santa a week ago. None of the kids could keep their eyes open past 10.30, a mixture of being far past their bedtimes and the boring, wine-fueled talk of grown-ups. At 11.45, Teddy called Junior back to the mother-in-law and surprised him with chilled bottles of champagne from the garage fridge. He reminded Junior of his first date with Raina, and Teddy slapped his forehead with an open palm. You saved my life, my friend, Junior said, taking the champagne in the house to act like he remembered the date and that the champagne was a surprise for Raina. Raina cried with happiness and kissed Junior all over his face, forgiving him for the argument that morning. Kathy shook her head and pointed a sly finger at Teddy. Kathy ordered the bottles for him from Charlie's Liquor two days ago and knew this was a brotherly act to save Junior's face. Kathy let it go, tucked a bottle next to her purse to take home, and allowed Teddy this rescue. Raina and Baby Lynn got all the pots and pans down and woke the kids at about five minutes to midnight. They were supposed to bang them and scream and sing songs to scare away bad spirits and make the new year be a blessed one, free of ill fortune. Teddy won up the pots and pans by hauling out a wooden crate of fireworks he bought and saved back in July. Junior did all the honors with a Zippo. It was a beat-up thing he won in a trade for Lambanog from a marine on shore leave. And the kids were dancing and laughing, though the little ones didn't know what to make of the explosions and vacillated between crying and smiling with wide eyes sparkling in the flash. She likes the red ones, Kathy noticed, rocking the baby on her hip to give Raina a break. Like all New Year's Eves, the fun faded to exhaustion for the entire party within minutes after midnight. The kids slept in a puddle of each other on the floor in front of the fireplace. The parents went off to make love or finish arguments. Kathy drove home, only a little drunk on champagne. Teddy went back to his rooms behind the house. He knew he wouldn't sleep tonight. The bad dreams from the war were sailing off his bow after the sky had been filled with fire all night long. He took up a bottle of Canadian Club and poured two fingers, 
then a third, and turned on the radio. It was Glenn Miller. Teddy remembered hearing the news even as far as the Philippines that Miller had died in a plane over the English Channel back in 44. It touched Teddy then, and it touched him again now. He drank to good memories and to bad, and he figured he'd risk driving up the mountain in the morning with Manny and Junior regardless of the road conditions. After all, he thought, the lariat is closing. The thought pierced his head, his world, like a divine needle. He didn't know why he thought it or what it even meant, but it was important. It meant he'd send entire crews up the mountain when the storms allowed it. Tomorrow, though, it would just be his own truck. Her mission was far from over. Every boat could float again, Teddy reminded himself, with a smooth swallow pursed between tight whiskey lips. Even the old dame. So that is the story of Teddy. And you may be wondering, what's up? How did Teddy exist with Josephine in the 2000s and then drive home and be in the year 1959? And that's a good question. And that question and a whole lot of questions just like it are things that we tackle in the sit-down episodes, which are exclusive to our patrons. So if you want to hear us talk about questions like that, dig into some of the mysteries of Mindframe Podcast, you can always go to patreon.com backslash Mindframe Podcast and opt for the level that comes with the sit-downs. We record a sit-down for every single chapter with myself, Brent Van Tassel, and Zach Smith asking questions and theorizing about the chapters. I don't theorize. I often remain silent since I already know the answers, but we try our best to have a robust conversation about the content in the chapters. Um, also, you can visit uh, our website, mindframepodcast.com, uh, to find uh, merchandise, shirts, coffee mugs, everything you can think of, hats, um, as well as uh, different pieces of fiction. You can find my original uh, book, 181 Pine, the beginning of the Sixth Paradigm trilogy of novels for sale on there. And you can also find Zach Smith's books. Um, he's got several, uh, three different novels and a collection of short stories in there on the website as well. Um, we are also part of the Podbelly network. And if you go to podbelly.com, aside from educational content, you can find other great podcasts such as Kim and Ket Stay Alive Maybe and Do It Doug and find a whole list of other great shows that you might want to give a chance to. Keep an eye on our social media. We will often have uh, contests, uh, whether it's for 181 Pine or for... Um, uh, Mindframe, and we will also be asking you all questions. Uh, if you have questions about the chapters, we can always answer them on future sit-down episodes, etc. But uh, just engage with us if you like and if you share our content. It's a huge deal. It really helps us spread the love and the word of uh, Mindframe Podcast. So if you join one of our social media sites and share some posts, it's really incredible. It's really amazing, and it's a great way to support the show for free. So on social media, you can find us on Facebook at Mindframe Podcast podcast on Instagram at the mindframe podcast at Twitter on the mindframe pod and on Reddit at r slash mindframe podcast. So um, that's it for another episode. Unfortunately, if you want to sit down, um, they are no longer free starting with this chapter. So please consider uh, Patreon and you can hear us uh, wax uh, poetic about the chapter. Um, until next time, the Lariat is closing. <laughs>